This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are talking politics and religion without killing each other. I am your host, Corey Nathan, and it is an honor to be a part of the Democracy Group, a network of podcasts that examines what's broken in our democracy and how we can work together to fix it. And remember to subscribe or follow, depending on the app that you're on, and leave us a good rating. Leave us, uh, if well, I guess if you hate the show, why are you listening? But if you hate, you know, if you listen for the first time, you hate it. All right. So maybe I deserve one star, two stars, whatever. Um, it's all good. There's no bad publicity, right? But uh, if you do like the show, I'd love a good rating. And But I'd especially love writing that review. The reviews in particular do help. Um, I'll put a link in the show notes to make it easy for you to do just that. Uh, writing the review and all of this helps get the word out so more people can participate in the conversation like the one I'm having today with uh, my friend. Uh, he's somebody that I've known for a vast majority of my life, uh, a fellow named Rich Weiss. We graduated high school together. Uh, Rich is somebody that I remember being a smart dude, earnest, serious about certain things, hardworking, like he puts his mind to some things and like, you know, as an adult, I, you know, he emerged as this great musician and I, there are certain things about Rich, like he's a, he's a man of integrity. So I uh, really respect him. There's certain things I, I'm going to, I realize that we really strongly disagree about, but that's part of the fun. So, uh, but Rich is uh, at the end of the day, he's a good man. Uh, he's also the, uh, I guess the, fa- are you the founder of Guilty Pleasures? Yeah, it's my, my group. Yeah. Yeah. Guilty Pleasures is an instant party rock pop country band who prides uh, themselves on reaching deep into the musical archives and playing all the songs you forgot you loved. And it's true, I've been to a couple of parties where Rich's band has been playing and it is a ton of fun. Um, So uh, that's partly for me buttering up Rich a little bit, (laughs) but it's it's all true. What I said is all true. Um, So the reason that we're talking today is that uh, I've obviously been posting about this show and some of the stuff that we're talking about and some of the guests that we've had on. And there are two or three times where I saw Rich leave a comment that was like, oh, man, he strongly objects. Uh, But we never actually engaged on the uh, actual issues. And then finally, uh, about a week or so ago, I decided to hit him up offline and be like, hey, man, do you listen to the interview or you want to talk about it or and he was game. So Rich came on the show and here he is. And thanks for joining me, man. Thank you for having me. Yeah, yeah. So one thing I was curious about is I, I wanted to go back a little bit. Like when you were when we were in high school, were you already interested in politics or when did you start really getting engaged politically? You know, actually it goes back to fourth grade. Oh. I can remember very, very clearly uh how strongly I felt that the hostages were taken in Iran. Oh yeah. American hostages and I remember, I will remember this forever, like being so angry that like, I remember my bed, my bedroom had like wallpaper and my bed was sitting next to the wallpaper and I was so angry that I punched the wall and made like a mark in the wallpaper because I was so upset that these hostages had been taken. Wow. As I'm sure most Americans were. Um, It was only within the last, say, seven or eight years or so that I found out why they were taken and why the Iranians were so upset, Um, you know, which 
turned a lot of those things on, on its head and kind of where I'm at now. But I've always had this mind for, you know, what's going on in the world. Always was interested in geography, um, you know, just kind of like you, the way people deal with each other, but also like on a, a national and international level. So yeah. oh, I've always been interested in that. I majored in political science in, you know, when I went to college, um, you know, my professional life, I became a teacher and I'm a social studies teacher. So like right now I'm literally teaching civics um, to eighth graders. So, you know, I'm teaching them how the world works and how, how this system works. Um, so yeah, I've always, always had my mind on that since I was a kid. So it sounds like some of your views have evolved or maybe even uh, flipped on its head, as, as you said. Um, when did you start uh, when did you start developing specific uh, opinions about specific pieces of legislation or uh, specific politicians or maybe even a, a specific party? At what point did that start uh, coming into focus for you? You know, I think like probably I would guess yourself, um, <clears throat> like my my family had a certain political bent, uh, like my parents leaned a certain way. And I kind of followed that because, you know, you grow up around something and, and this point of view, you hear this point of view over and over again, and you kind of, uh, unless you reject it for some strange, you know, for some reason, um, you know, you kind of absorb that. And so I'm pretty sure that, you know, most of those opinions came from there initially. Um, then when I went to college, I went to a very, very liberal college. So I just gave away the, uh, the bet, but, um, but yeah, I went to like a super liberal college. Um, and like I said, studied political science there. So I learned from very liberal professors about, you know, the way that the United States conducted itself, the way we conducted our own politics and internationally. So I think that was developed there. Um, in college, I was actually taking U.S. politics while Bill Clinton was campaigning to win his first election. Right. And I mean, I literally knew about every congressional race that was going on in the country at that time. Oh, wow. So plugged in. Yeah, I was like, you know, I mean, that was that was kind of what it was at that time. And all my friends, we were all into it. So we knew about the governor race in Kentucky and we knew about you know, the uh, whatever seat in California, we knew what the issues were everywhere. And that was probably the most plugged in I was at any time in my life. But, you know, that's, uh, that's where the, a lot of those things solidified. Um, but as you said, things have evolved. And, you know, I'm sure we'll get to that uh, yeah. later on in the conversation. So where, where were you going? Swarthmore or something like that? Uh, I went to Ithaca College. Oh, okay. Right, right, right. Um, yeah. That's interesting. I didn't expect. So, okay. So I don't know if you remember in junior high school, occasionally I would come in with a tie. Do you, do you, would you happen to remember that? <laughs> I, we didn't really know each other in, in junior high school yet, but um, the reason I did that is because my family was definitely very liberal, but I identified with the Alex P Keaton character and, <laughs> you know, so even at a young age, the narrative of that, he was the most appealing character to me, not just because he was funny and it was Michael J. Fox or whatever, but also my dad was a big news hour guy, even back then. 
And I found myself gravitating more towards, uh, I forget who it was at that time, but it was uh, the, as far back as may, during, maybe during uh, the early nineties, it was like Gergen and Shields. And I found myself gravitating more towards the Gergen, more towards the right of center guys uh, in those conversations. But I was most compelled that they were sitting at the table together. That's, mm. that's always what was most important to me is that um, even back then, especially like a couple of years after when you're talking about when um, contract with America, why am I blanking on his name? He, he became Speaker of the House, 94 oh, to 90. Uh, Not Rush. Um, no, I'm Gingrich. Newt Gingrich. Yeah, so, yes. Yeah. So I was horrified at the level of uh, animosity he had toward anybody from the other side, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so to me, even back then, I just, regardless of whether there was disagreement on policy, I wanted there to be able to have a conversation. Like when we were in high school, it was, you know, Ronald Reagan, you know, arguing with Tip O'Neill, but they could still have a scotch at six o'clock together, you know? Yeah. So that's... Um, I definitely leaned a little bit more conservative on a lot of things, uh, but it was staying in the conversation, staying in the, you know, in the debate, staying in the compromise, you know? So, mm -hmm. um, so you, you said that you had uh, cer certain things got turned. Oh, let me ask you about your teaching. Are there things that give you hope and are, a thi are there are things about eighth graders that give you great concern? And if so, what are they? I would say I lean more heavily toward the concern. Okay. Um, and <clears throat> that gets into a whole conversation about education, which I don't think we have even enough time for. Um, That's but, next time. Next time. Yeah. Um, you know, I am hopeful in that. Um, so just really quickly, like the kids that I teach now as eighth graders, I taught some of them as fifth and then again as sixth graders. Then they moved up to seventh without me, but then I moved up to eighth to meet them again. So I've seen some of these kids three times in the last four years, and I truly care about them, and I think they truly care about me. And I I could say with 100% certainty, I don't see any, like, really bad apples in, in this group of kids. Like, I think they have a good heart. Um, as far as educationally, I... Uh, I see a lot of issues and that's not necessarily on them. Part of it is on them, but there's a lot, there's a big part of it on um, the system, like the educational system as a whole. Uh, but like I said, that's a bigger conversation for another day. Yeah, we have a, I was able to have this great conversation with a great scholar named Jonathan Haidt, teaches at NYU Stern School of Business. He's got a book coming out. I'd be interested if you had a chance to read it. Um, a few years ago, he, he published a book that he co-authored with Greg Lukianoff called The Coddling of the American Mind. Um, this one that's coming out now is called The Anxious Generation. And he's just like a sociologist. He studies like generations of people and how different influences are affecting them from, you know, not just, you know, not just smartphones, but like, you know, social media and how that's literally affecting their brains. So, um, yeah, you're right. That's a, it's a it's a much bigger conversation but you're on the front lines like you're with the kids on a day-to-day -day basis so yeah before we move on i wanted to tell you about something else that's important money <laughs> uh, specifically your money in all seriousness i wanted to tell you about my advisor and my friend george Mesa. george runs Mesa wealth management and with george it's not just about money it's about helping us manage our present 
and plan for our future. And unlike a lot of other firms out there, George and I actually have a relationship. He knows me, he knows my family, and I know his wonderful family. I also know his firm and the incredible team he's put together from his chief investment officer to some of the other great people in his office, like Jessica, their head of operations that are always there to help me and with all aspects of our portfolio. You see, the thing is, I got a lot going on. I guess we all got a lot going on and I don't have the time to watch our investments all day, every day. And even if I did, I don't have the experience and expertise that George's team collectively has. So we get the entire Mesa Wealth Management team all their expertise and all their integrity. And again, it's based on George knowing me personally, knowing my goals, and even the kind of risk that's appropriate for me to take, which by the way, could change from one season to the next. And they're on top of all of that. So if you want George Mesa and Mesa Wealth Management to be on your team, just visit their website, mesawealth.com. That's M-E-Z-A wealth.com, www.mesawealth.com. And that will also be in our show notes, so you can check that. And now, back to our show. Is there, is there a, are you teaching in an area that's heavily, heavily blue or heavily, heavily red, or is it more of a purple district? Um, I would say it's probably more blue, but um, I don't really know, because I don't really, I mean, I hear some things that the kids say, which again, I have to I have to attach that back to the parents because you know that's that, that's what they're getting from home um but um in general like I would say it's probably blue but we don't really get into those conversations yet. Yeah. Uh, I am going to bring up party politics as part of the curriculum. Yeah. You know, but we haven't do- haven't done that yet so and <clears throat> I've been very careful about like not really uh, injecting my personal views into the into the conversation because I want them to think about issues for themselves. Um, if you know, if do things, you know, if issues do come up, I want them to think about it critically rather than hear from me what they should think. You know. Yeah, yeah. So it sounds like you are uh, maybe encouraged or concerned. Maybe isn't the best framework. It sounds like you have a great affinity for the kids on a human level but you're really concerned about the some structural things. Is that, is that fair to say? Yeah. I mean, I even saw an article the other day. um, I forget where it was, but um, it was written by, I think the guy, like the CEO of Kaplan learning centers or something like one of those companies that does like those type of after-school programs and things, but someone who's, you know, been tapped into education for a very long time and he talked about, you know, the American system of education and like it's all like based on standardized testing and stuff like that. And I don't think we're really doing a service to kids by doing that. I think we're trying to get data out of a situation that's not necessarily or shouldn't be necessarily data driven. Oh, that's interesting. I remember my brother was in the school system. He was a teacher for at least 15 years. Uh, and he was he was a teacher during Bush's administration when they were doing um, I forgot what they called it. He, he like kind of upended education. They called it a big program or something. And and he's like he, he he thought that the way they were doing the research or that the testing to get results and data on whether it was effective was completely flawed because they weren't testing the same set of kids. 
they were testing 11th graders or something like that. It's like, well, you know that the 11th graders are different every year. So you're not really getting. <laughs> so um, yeah. he had he had issues with how they were checking their their uh, their progress. Um, so I, I want to dive into it a little bit. Uh, there was something last week. There's been one or two other things over the, the prior weeks and months that I could tell you objected to. If I'm being an asshole, I would say you did like drive by belligerence of, of something I posted. <laughs> yeah, probably. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, okay. So what, what, what's one thing that comes to mind that I posted that you objected to and why did you object to it? You know, I don't rem- I guess um, it was the person that you had on. I think you, you said you interviewed um, Lieutenant Alexander Colonel Vindman. Alexander Vinman. Yeah. Yeah. And uh and honestly, like, I don't think there's that many people in the country who really would even know who he is. Like, I think it's a pretty small set of people who know, like, who who that person is. But I, and again, some of these, so I have a lot of things going through my mind, and not all of them stay for a long period of time. <laughs> but, You're um, becoming you're like your eighth graders now. <laughs> yeah, but... I know, I, I know that um, he's a military guy, and I know that um, from what I believe I've read, uh, he's very much, you know, on the side of like keeping the Ukraine war going against Russia, um, and that's one thing that I take huge issue with is this sort of, um, you know, the war. What I, I just have to call him out: the warmongers in Washington. Um, people like him, people like Victoria Newland, um, you know, like those people, I, I feel like they, um, they look for war for war's sake and, and not to get too conspiratorial, but I, I really think that in some respect, the policy is being driven by the weapons manufacturers more so than even the politicians. And that is very scary to me. Um, I mean, one of the things that um, that people don't talk about or maybe they don't even realize is there's a lot that has gone into the, the Ukraine war. Uh, people think it started two years ago when, you know, when Putin decided to go after Ukraine. But it's it goes way back further than that. Um, one of the things that's been talked about is, you know, the U.S. and other other member states have dangled uh, NATO membership out to Ukraine, and um, that was one thing that I think it was Secretary Secretary of State Baker back in the Gorbachev days. Um, told Gorbachev that when we finally achieve peace with Russia, we wouldn't move NATO one inch east. Like we would not, we would not uh, add more countries to NATO that were closer to Russia. And so obviously Ukraine would be a breaking of that promise. And so, but to get back to my initial point, um, Every NATO buy-in, like every NATO uh, country that that buys into NATO, there's like an automatic weapons buy. Like they have to buy like, I think it's $15 billion worth of weapons 
from all these weapons, these uh, these military contractors. So it's almost like NATO is just like the 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 sales arm of the weapons industry, you know, and that's scary because you know, like there's people that are calling for diplomacy, and I, I am a peacenik. I am. I'll say that loud and proud. I am not for war anywhere in this world. I believe that. I truly believe that humanity has gotten to the point where we don't need war anymore. We can make enough surplus for everybody in this world that there's, there should be no fights over resources anymore. Okay. Yeah. And so if that's the case, then what is like, why is this keep happening? Okay. And it does keep happening. Why does this keep happening? Why is there a fight going on in Israel and Gaza right now? Okay. It like, these things keep happening in the world and it's totally not necessary. So to me, that tells me that there, there's a motivation behind it. And I always say, follow the money. You know, why is this happening? It's motivated by somebody's pocket. Yeah. And so I think that um, somebody like Vinman, like he's one of those people that's like a cheerleader for war. And personally, that disgusts me. So, yeah. um, again, I know you want to have people on your show uh, that uh, represent different viewpoints. And I, I appreciate that, especially at this moment, because you have me on. But, um, you know, people like that, like, it, I, I don't understand. And people like that really bother me because anyone who cheerleads for war, I think, is um, quite frankly depraved. So... I'm not here to defend uh, Vinman, but I think the way he would describe it, he he and his uh, brothers were born in Ukraine uh, and their father, uh, when it was still a Soviet Union, part of Soviet Union, and their father uh, basically escaped from the Soviet Union when they were about three years old. So they got here and I uh, got to Brooklyn in 1979 um, and he grew up. Uh, feeling very patriotic because the country that received them, that saved them basically. And that's why he and his brother ended up going into the military. Um, I think that he would not describe himself as pro-war so much as pro-sovereignty of the independent state of Ukraine. Um, but again, I'm not here to de defend. So let me, let me just back up because you said a bunch of things that I'm glad that you laid out for me because some of it is surprising. Th there's points where we very much overlap, but I didn't, I didn't think, let me just back up for a second. So around 03, 04, I probably would have said a lot of the same things that you're saying right now, but it was in terms of Cheney. Uh, in particular, Cheney had just come off of running Halliburton, which manufactures a lot of weapons of war and or to, you know, all this stuff. Um, and we were getting into we were in particular the war in Iraq. We were getting into a war in Iraq under questionable circumstances. Not only that, we were get, handing out no bid multi billion dollar contracts to Halliburton. And Cheney was the biggest advocate, Dick Cheney, not, not Liz Cheney, obviously. Um, you know, the vice president was the biggest advocate for going to war with Iraq. So mm -hmm. back then, I was not only thinking, but probably even saying some of the very uh, articulating some of the same positions that you are now. What I'm surprised about is that there was something that you said about Trump that I'm like, wait, he's going to come in and he's going to talk. He's going to push back. I thought you assumed that I was 
very far left uh, and you wanted to make a case for uh, Trump. So I thought we were going to go in a whole different direction. So I'm, I'm, I'm surprised by some of what um, what you're saying. And there, there is some disagreement. Like I said, I think that what's happening in Ukraine, uh, I believe that Putin, you know, tried to encroach upon a, a sovereign state in order to basically put back together the old Soviet Union. What's happening in Israel is something very different. I don't agree with the way that Netanyahu is executing the war. Um, it, it's 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 a complex situation. That said, you know, I didn't have an immediate cousin that died on October 7th, but my cousin's nephew died on October 7th. So I also believe that my cousins should have a place to live where they're not getting the, you know, they should be able to protect themselves, right? They should, mm-hmm. they should be able to um, live peacefully without worrying about people, you know, parachuting down and raping and killing and pillaging. Um, and I think it can be done. So those are two very different situations. I'm kind of going off the rails here a little bit on all the different things that that you covered. But there is some points of agreement here in that I felt the way that you feel about Cheney in 03, 04 and what he was doing. I don't think the situation in Ukraine right now is is exactly the same. Okay, so let me talk to a couple of those things. Um, first of all, you 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 spoke about how you know, Putin, you see this as Putin wanting to, you know, encroach on Ukraine to to repiece the Soviet Union back together or something like that. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so there's some things that have happened that don't get covered in the media. I think they were actually when they happened, but they, people kind of lose sight of that. So a couple of things and, and everything that I'm saying, I could either send you stuff to you know, to verify, or you could look up on your own. These are not things that I'm making up out of clear blue sky. So in 2013, Ukraine held what was supposedly considered a a democratically, uh, a democratic election, a free democratic election. And I forget the name of the winner, but he was um, apparently somebody who was sort of neutral, not pro-Russia and not pro-West. Okay, just sort of in the middle. Um, apparently that didn't sit well with the powers that be in the United States. And so um, they, well, they called it the Maidan revolution, but from what I have seen and read, the CIA fomented that. Okay. So they basically uh, figured out a way to get that, that guy out of power. They put another pro Western guy in who eventually became Zelensky. Okay. But the reason, one of the things that was happening at that time, um, there's an area in Ukraine, uh, they call it the Donbass region, okay? And a lot of, and that's part of Ukraine. However, again, I, I do not consider myself an expert on these things. I've just read some things, uh, some articles here or there. I'm certainly not, uh, you know, like a Rhodes Scholar about this. But um, for what I understand, a lot of those people in the Donbass region identified as Russians, like they spoke Russian, they identified as Russian nationals. And so um, they they came to some sort of a peace agreement. There was a, a faction that wanted to break away from Ukraine and either have independence or rejoin Russia. 
And so they came to a peace agreement called the Minsk Accords. And and this was like a, a permanent ceasefire, supposedly. Um, however, <clears throat> from that time, which was 2014 until two, 2022, Ukraine was bombing that region the entire time. Okay. Okay. Bombing their supposedly owned citizens. And so when Putin went to, uh, to invade Ukraine, it was really in regards to that particular region and those people who were sort of crying out for his help. At least that's the way I understand it. So again, this didn't start in 2022. It started in 2013 when that election was held. We sort of didn't really like the results and um, and got rid of that person and put our own sort of puppet in place. And there's actually even um, the woman I mentioned before, Victoria Newland. She was the I think the undersecretary of state at the time. And there was a leaked phone call before that Maidan revolution where she was basically shopping for the next Ukrainian president over the phone. Mm. Oh, hey, we should get that guy to be uh, Ukraine's president. He seems pretty cool and he seems like he'll be pretty favorable to the uh, our Western views. And so, you know, like that, that kind of showed our hand that we had something to do with this, or at least we had a, we certainly had a dog in the fight. Um, another thing, and there's a video that I've seen where, and again, this guy was just a, like a guy from a think tank in Washington, but I don't know how much leverage he had on policy, but <clears throat> was talking about um, the partnership between Russia and Germany and the the pipeline, the gas pipeline that went from Russia into Germany, right, yeah, delivering like cheap natural gas for for ages. And um, so this guy is on video saying that you know we want to we want to drive a wedge between. Uh, German ingenuity and Russian resources and manpower. We don't want like that. That alliance made us uneasy or made the U.S. uneasy. And so we wanted to drive a wedge between Germany and Russia. And this was and so like taking out the Nord Stream pipeline was a way to do that. Although, in honesty, I don't know why Germany would go along with it because they just raised their energy prices. Right, right. So kind of like you, I'm not an expert in these particular issues, what's happening. I know enough about it to understand the top lines. And that's why I bring people in who have experience or more informed perspectives. Um, what what I'm curious about uh, is what, what our conversation, I think, really is about, isn't necessarily about one particular issue so much as like how we're informing each ourselves. So what I was curious about, whether you want to share um, news sources that you trust, but maybe and even from a bigger uh, standpoint, because you're a teacher, um, how can we get better at being more informed citizens? Like, or specifically, like, how do we, how, how do we get better at um, being more informed digesters or consumers of the news? Because I think a lot of folks 
to your point, you, you and it's a, it would be a fair assumption to make, whether it's with me or just in general, like, hey, folks are just drawn to stuff that like tickles their ears. You know, you're going to watch MSNBC or certain shows or you're going to listen to certain podcasts because you like what this guy says and you're not really informing yourself. So how do we do better at consuming news so that we're better informed? So that, that that's what I was really curious about with you. That is a fantastic question because I think it's funny. I've talked about this with friends. Um, I've actually said the phrase we are in a post-truth society. Mm -hmm. Like, <clears throat> what is truth at this point? Um, you know, to go back to, you know, just to bring up Trump for a moment, like, I think he sort of broke the looking glass. You know, like, because if you think about it, like, our parents, they grew up watching guys like Walter Cronkite. Yeah. Just came on the, at night and told whatever supposedly the news was just told the facts, or at least that's what we thought. Um, and then we watched Ted Koppel and, you know, um, Tom Brokaw and whatever. Um, <clears throat> now, excuse me. Um, I find it very hard to trust any quote unquote mainstream mainstream news source anymore. Um, and I'll tell you something that, and again, this is one of those things that I don't know if you've heard of or or if you've ever even looked into. Um, have you ever heard the term uh, of, of this this thing called um, Operation Mockingbird? No. Okay. So, and this was declassified, so it's not like obviously. Again, I'm not making this up. Um, the CIA had a program called Operation Mockingbird from. Well, they said it started in the '50s. And so what that was, either they would place or they would get a hold of journalists at different outlets to make sure that they sort of told the news from the viewpoint that the CIA wanted them to tell it. OK. Um, and <clears throat> however, this came to the attention of Congress in, I believe, the 70s. And supposedly the CIA shut that program down. But I would argue that not only did they not shut it down, it's actually more prevalent than it ever was. Um, because if you think about it, just think about this for one second. So we've just mentioned two wars, the, uh, you know, uh, Israel and Ukraine. OK, I want you to think back over. the Just let's take Ukraine. Just leave Israel out for a second. Just take what's happening in Ukraine. Think back for the last two years. I don't, and I don't know if you go on watch MSNBC or CNN or Fox or anywhere, but like, see if you could remember somebody coming on any of those programs with a pro peace or an anti war message and not being ridiculed, like from the get go. I I would bet it would be very hard for you to think of an example, because all of those those news outlets um i feel are there to manufacture support for those wars i mean if you think back to the days like you were talking about in 2002 when uh when we went into iraq and afghanistan you know they're all standing on the the decks of the the, the navy boats saying mission accomplished yeah yeah and it's like 
they were literally trying to drum up support for these wars and it was all based on faulty pretenses. So, so, oh, wait, one more, one more. Yeah, yeah, sure. Finish this thought. So like we all lived through that and that, <clears throat> that whole like Saddam's got weapons of mass destruction lie that was told over and over and over again. And uh, we lived through, well, we didn't live through really, but our parents lived through, um, you know, the, uh, the Pentagon papers that were lying about the, um, the casualty numbers in the Vietnam war. So why do we think that we're being told the truth now? Right. So, okay. I have, you covered a lot of ground there. So I, I feel compelled <laughs> to try to cover, um, to, to respond to some of it. So about 10 years ago, plus or minus maybe 15, um, there was a law that was being passed in California that would have made it mandatory for kids to get not just a vaccine, but this whole like suite of vaccines. And uh, at the time, Lisa and I were not anti-vaccine, but we were anti like being forced to get all of the vaccines because some mm -hmm. of which, some of them just didn't apply to our kids. Um, and, and we were ridiculed for even bringing up like questions bringing up because we you, watching CNN, watching MSNBC, watching like even Fox News too, actually. Um, a lot of the commercials are, you know, these uh, bio, company. yeah, the drug companies. So, yeah. Like they, you by Pfizer. Right, right, right. Um, so there was not room to tell stories that would at least uh, be healthy skeptics or you know, uh, a little pushback. Hey, can we have the conversation kind of a thing? There was no room to have the conversation. That's a, that was, I wouldn't say the first time that I became skeptical about the uh, overall narrative, but since then I, I'm not, I'm not ready to throw out the baby with bathwater. Uh, Cause yeah, definitely certain um, outlets have leanings one way or the other, especially when it comes to editorial, but in any given newspaper, like my friends that I go to church with, a lot of them are big Trump supporters. Um, so if I say, yeah, I was reading the Washington Post the other day, oh, you can't trust anything. But you know what? Robert Costa is a really good journalist. That dude's a really good reporter. Um, you know, uh, any number of uh, opinion writers in there, you know, whether they be liberal leaning or I mean, Michael Gerson was one of the best writers, agree with him, disagree with him, just a really thoughtful, literate, um, well-informed, uh, good soul of a writer. I wish I, I had a chance to meet him before he passed away. So I'm saying that because I'm not ready to throw out the New York Times as a whole, the Washington Post as a whole, even, even a, an outlet like Breitbart or, um, you know, you can find individual good thinkers, good writers, good people in any number of outlets. There are some outlets and some platforms where it is harder to to have an independent, objective, just pure good journalism voice. Um, but that's where the democratization of media comes in. The fact that I'm doing this, I don't pretend to be a news guy. I pretend like I'm pretending to be a conversation podcast guy, you know, yeah. Um so, but you can find there's, there's abuses of it and the democratization of media has, has already imposed a lot of great harm. Uh, I, Alex Jones's platform comes to mind, for example, uh, just off the top of my head, but a lot of good has come out of it too, because where have, uh, where have nuanced voices gone? 
if, if they're too nuanced for the purity of Fox News or the purity of MSNBC, where have they gone? They've developed their, a lot of folks who are really smart thinkers, nuanced thinkers, develop their, their own Substack or develop their own, you know, uh, podcasts. And that's where I, that's what I consume. I look for voices that are based in that have a good foundation in classical liberalism. Um, you know, so it, it, they, you could think of them as more conservative and more liberal now, but I, I think those terms are getting really foggy because the way they've been hijacked by some bad actor, a lot of bad actors. Um, but Yuval Levin, for example, you probably vote differently than he did, certainly back in the Bush days, I'm guessing. But he's the one that wrote a book that helped to uh, distill the, the conversations between Thomas Paine and Edmund Burke. Those conversations going back a couple hundred years are worth revisiting. Um, you know, but it takes, that's why I was asking you that question because it takes discernment on our part, but we don't, it's almost like we don't, with, without eighth grade teachers like you, so many of us are ill-equipped to develop that discernment to even know where to look. So I don't know if I'm asking you, asking you a question right now so much as responding to some of the things that you said. What's striking to me is that, yeah, there's still some things we probably disagree about. You're talking about certain things that I, I want to look further into. Um, you're bringing up some points where I'm like, huh, I didn't, you know, I didn't think of it in those, those terms. But I also think I was, <laughs> I guess I shouldn't be surprised, but there's also a lot of overlap. There's a lot that we're probably saying a lot of the same things, although we're using different examples. You're using Ukraine and I use the Cheney thing. So there's there's probably a lot of agreement there too. So I don't know, sure, what, do you, sure. what do you think? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I do think, uh, and I'm kind of surprised actually, because again, the things that, I, and you know what, I don't even, I shouldn't even say that. Like, I, I mean, I've seen you post a couple of things that seemed, seem like you were, you know, team blue, no matter who kind of person. And, um, and, uh, and honestly, like I was that way for a long time. So, but, but like the last, the last like six or seven years have changed the way that I think and the way that I respond politically. Um, so I thought that we would have a lot of disagreement, but I guess not as much as uh, I anticipated. I'm definitely not blue, no matter who. That's for sure. I end up. Um, I think I recognize and and uh, have more patience with more liberal friends, um, even though, especially at the state and local level, I end up voting for a lot of Republicans. Um, but I have a caveat. My caveat is if your platform is solely based on how much you hate the libs, I there's I'm not going to support you I'm not going to vote for you I'm not going to support you like so many like our our elected um our U.S. House member Mike Garcia that dude's like he doesn't have any governing philosophy other than Democrats are bad they're evil we have to fight against them you know that and that's not a governing philosophy um for me so there is somebody a Republican Suzette Valadares who's running for state senate in the state legislature here in California. And I'm a, I'm a big fan. Like we there's specific legislation we disagree about, but the reason that I'm a big fan is that she was, when she was in the assembly, she was the per, one of the people who was the founder of the state, uh, the um, problem solvers coalition uh, or caucus, I should say in the state legislature. 
So that's like, okay, now I'm curious. Now I'm interested. You don't see Democrats as, as evil, as the enemy, but you're, you know, loyal opposition. Now I'm interested. And she took a couple of really hard votes. Like she voted for, uh, Newsom had a California constitutional amendment uh, to protect a woman's right to choose. Um, regardless of how you feel about abortion, you have to admit that for a Republican to vote for that amendment to protect a woman's right to choose takes a lot of balls, like so to speak, takes a lot of yep. guts. So I love seeing folks, whether they're Republican or Democrat, occasionally take a principled stance. Even if I disagree with the actual issue, it, like the, the biggest issue for me is be independent sometimes, you know, to take a, take a principled stance against your party when if you think it's it's the right thing to do. You know, and and most importantly, just because somebody has a different letter before their name, or if they're not orthodox, like me, I'm not orthodox enough. Like, like I, I'm not Republican or Democrat. I'm a true. I, I believe that I'm a true independent. Um, depending on the issue, depending on the politician. But, um, but for me, if you see somebody who's wearing a different hat or different jersey than you, and you see them as the enemy solely because they have, then like that's my biggest issue, really, above and uh, above anything else. So. I don't know if that, I guess that, so that, I guess that it sounds like that's surprising to you, huh? <laughs> it is a little bit. Yeah. All right. um, and again, I mean, I, and I, I actually wasn't a hundred percent positive that you still live in California, but, but uh, I do tend to think of Californians as, as sort of hippie liberals. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and it's fair because you think of LA, you think of San Francisco, but even me, I'm in Southern California. So about 25, 30 miles North of LA, but our district is the purplest, one of the purplest districts in the country. Uh, Mike Garcia, the Republican, won by 333 votes out of uh, over 340,000 that were cast. So wow. super, super, like one-tenth of 1% or less than one-tenth of 1%. Um, yeah. So it was historically a red district. Um, oh, gosh, why did I forget his name? Uh, the Republican um, was the elected... Uh, U.S. Congress member for Buck McKeon. Buck McKeon was our, our uh, Congress member for like 30 years. Um, we had uh, Katie, Katie Hill here for a year and a half, uh, okay. but she had to, uh, she, she resigned. She stepped aside. I don't think it was totally fair. Her ex-husband basically, you know, uh, posted naked pictures of her and it led to all these other, you know, allegations and she just couldn't, she didn't want to have to put herself through that. So she stepped down. But she was the only Democrat that served in this district anytime over the last 30, 40 years. Um, so anyway, uh, wh where do you live now? I'm in Jersey still. Oh, okay. Central Jersey? Uh, Northern Jersey. Okay. Yeah, like uh, about 20 minutes, well, 15, 20 minutes from Newark. Oh, okay. Yeah, Lisa yeah. flies into Newark a lot. So um, I might, I miss New Jersey, man. Isn't that crazy to say? I miss New Jersey. It's not crazy. This is really... I don't know what. The, well, I mean, we do still do still have decent beaches, so you know, good pizza, good bagels, good people, man, good people. That's, That's the thing. True. We are good people. Did you have any questions for me? Yeah, but actually, I actually did some homework before this. Oh, okay, came ready for bear. <laughs> Loaded yeah, for bear. Um, <laughs> so I put together like just a group of uh, links, uh, news articles, videos. Um, on all different topics, like things that I thought we would get into. Yeah. So I just sent it to you, but I also put it in the chat. Okay. Um, so it's just a Google Doc with a bunch of stuff, uh, you know, um, 
on different topics that I I thought we would get into. If we don't, that's fine. But um, things that are things that I think make you kind of scratch your head. Okay. Yeah, I thought we would actually get into COVID a bunch, um, Biden, uh, immigration, which is completely bonkers, uh, Trump, the, the military, and the media. Those are kind of the big ones that I thought we would we would cover. And we covered some of that. So yeah, yeah. I uh, <laughs> I am not a Trump fan, but it's I'm not a Trump fan because I'm I'm actually a Berkey and conservative. Okay. Yeah. Um, I'm also, I don't know if, I don't know if you know this, but I, I became a Christian like 20 something years ago. I became a Christian, grew up I mean, going to Sons of Israel, the Orthodox synagogue in our town. Yeah. Yeah. And still my father's, you know, wears a yarmulke, keeps kosher. Um, so, you know, grew up very observant, but I became a Christian. And the biggest reason I'm not a Trump fan is because I'm a Christian. Like I just, you know, are you are you a religious guy? I, we don't have to talk about it, but no, huh? I'm um, not. I'm probably, if anything, I'm closer to Buddhist than anything. I, the part of Buddhism, so I don't consider Buddhism, from what I've learned about it, as much of a religion as a philosophy. Yeah. And I have incorporated a practice of Buddhism that has really changed my life, and it's uh, meditation. I meditate mm-hmm. almost every day. Um, and I don't see that as any way in any way antithetical to my Jewish or Christian beliefs. Um, so uh, it's interesting. That's a whole other conversation. But yeah, Biden, uh, listen, he wasn't my first choice. Um, there's any number of Republicans and Democrats that I would have loved to have seen as, uh, you know, our, our presidential candidates. But um, we got what we got. What I do like about Biden is that he's gotten a, uh, his administration has gotten a lot of big pieces of legislation done but specifically bipartisan pieces of legislation. So uh, that again, like we, as we've already been talking about, uh, but I guess that this could be a whole other hour if we start to open up some of these can of worms. Um, Did you, did you have any uh, specific questions for me or? Um, Yeah, I guess. uh, And this is like a statement with, which will be followed by a question, I guess. Sure. So I, I was not a Trump fan uh, for the most part. Like, I actually, my, my only knowledge of him was like when he would go on the Howard Stern show and he just seemed like the biggest douchebag in the world that I would yeah. never even want to be in the same room with. He just seems like an arrogant asshole. Yeah. And, <clears throat> and to, to most degree, still does. Um, but what I found... I found something very fascinating about him in that, um, first of all, he doesn't need campaign money. So unlike pretty much everyone else that would run for president, he doesn't really need anyone else's money. So he's not beholden to anyone particularly. Like, you know, all these guys that have to go around going to $10,000 plate dinners and trying to gain support from from donors. Um So, you know, when he positioned himself as an outsider, he truly was. He's he's not a lifelong politician. Okay, that's one thing that I did like about him. Um, I honestly never thought that he would even get close to the presidency. I remember having conversations in summer of uh, 2016 with my brother in law 
And my brother-in-law hates him, like absolutely hates his guts. And like, I remember, you know, the, some new poll came out and, and that that time there were still like 13 candidates, including Jeb Bush and Marco Rubio and all these other guys. And my brother-in-law was like, look, he's climbing in the polls. And this was in like, I don't know, May or June. I'm like, bro, don't worry. He's not going to make it. He's not going to make it. Yeah. And sure enough, he shows up to the debate and wipes the floor with 12 seasoned politicians, like literally dismisses them like like he's a, a character in that Street Fighter game we used to play in the arcade. Yeah. <laughs> just like bam, 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 swatting them. like, And I'm just like, how, how is this dude doing this? But – so one thing I'll say for Trump is, first of all, he knows how to work the media like nobody else. Like he is a master at at working the media. And and in this day and age, that that goes a long way. I mean, <clears throat> you know, it reminds me of like, um, you know, I've read about uh, when JFK ran against Nixon and that was like the first time they had a televised debate. Yeah. And, you know, Nixon was like way older than JFK. And JFK was a handsome young dude. And as soon as, he, soon as they put their pictures on TV, I think every woman in the country knew who they were going to vote for immediately. <laughs> yeah. I mean, seriously, like that, things like that, they matter. And so Trump, Trump manipulates the media like nobody I've ever seen. It's, it's, insane how he does that but the other thing is um you know some of his policies i have to say i agree with you know like look at what's happening with the border right now i mean he was the one that said we need to close the border there's like human trafficking that's going on on that corridor every single day of every year um there's and just from a just from a infrastructure standpoint, we can't withstand thousands of people coming in the country every day for years and years on end. We just can't. I mean, all these cities are crying uncle now. New York is like, we don't know what to do. I mean, you live near Los Angeles. I've I've heard of it as like just encampments, just like all over the streets. Like it, there, there's a point, there's a breaking point. I mean, Denver, they're like, Actually, I was watching a, a town hall meeting from like, not even Denver, like Lakeland, Colorado. I don't yeah. even know where it is. Yeah. But like, they're talking about like, you know, just from an infrastructure standpoint, you know, I was teaching my kids about the census. And, you know, every one of these cities, they look at the census data because it helps them and it helps inform them on what they need to budget, you know. How are we going to budget hospitals? How are we going to budget the police department, the fire department, the schools? All these things, you know, the census looks at those things. If an extra 5% show up that we don't know about, that's a big deal. That's a huge deal. How do you factor that in? You know, I, I asked my kids, I asked my students, what, like, we, we have, most of my classes are like 20 to 22 kids. And my room is... It's not tiny, but it's not big either. Yeah. What if we had 15 more kids in this classroom right now? How would that feel? How would that be for you? And they're like, oh, 
Well, that would suck. I'm like, yes, yes, it would. It would suck for me. You know, like it would be, it would be very difficult to deal with. And we're going like some places are going to have to deal with that. Right. Like they're here. And apparently we're not, you know, they're not being repatriated to their own countries, at least not right now. So like, that's an issue that Trump wanted to deal with head on. And people called him a racist for it. And I don't, I don't understand. And yeah, maybe he said some things that were, again, he, like you said, he's, he is an insane person. I'm not going to, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. I don't like the fact that I, that, you know, he's the best option on the right, but by the same token, if he, if he puts policies in place like that one, for example, that I agree with, I don't necessarily care that he sends out crappy tweets all night. Right. Yeah. So I, without getting into, oh, did you have a question or did you want me to just respond to that? I guess, um, I guess the question is like, policy wise, do you, do you see any, uh, any places where you agreed with him and where you specifically disagreed with him? Yeah. So I could, I could look at like from the first year, the 2017 tax law, um, what I appreciated about that tax law was the early drafts of that law when Paul Ryan was putting it together. But what we got was an abomination of what what could have been a principled piece of legislation. So and, and that, you know, listen, I didn't need any education on who the hell Donald Trump was, because like we graduated high school with guys who started their first businesses, got their first big contracts on the Taj or other AC uh, hotels and then also lost their first businesses. And one guy in particular lost his marriage and everything else because Donald Trump just didn't, didn't pay his bills back then. He doesn't pay his bills now. You know, so I knew exactly who he was going back to the New Jersey generals. Everything Trump touches dies. So, you know, I thought that he was going to be a candidate like the 2012 cycle had candidates like Michelle Bachman and the uh, uh, shucky ducky guy um, that we were just going to like entertain the Republic is going to entertain, you know, front runners for a, a little while until a serious front runner emerged. <clears throat> so, you know, as soon as he said, oh, I like my, you know, I like my heroes who weren't captured and disparaged John McCain, you know, grabbing women, you know, by the genitalia, like just like brazenly like, oh, that's just locker room talk. So I knew exactly who this dude was. So all that to say, like, were there certain things that like my cousins in Israel appreciated? My cousin Jonathan liked the fact that they moved the uh, embassy to Jerusalem, right? But here's the thing. It's almost like pieces of legislation that I agreed with were arbitrary. It's like you put like, I don't know, I like, I'm trying to think, I like sushi, right? Especially really good, really fresh sushi. But if you put sushi the best sushi in the world in a pile of shit, I'm not going to like it. And that's ultimately, if you, if you, first of all, most people that say, Oh, I love Trump. I love his policies. You ask one question, like, well, what policy are you speaking of? I don't, I don't know. I, I like them, you know? So <laughs> the truth is most people are just like, I, they like the fact that, you know, like his 2020 campaign, he's fighting for us. They like the fact that they feel aggrieved and now he, I'm your retribution. That's what they like. It's not about specific pieces of, pieces of policy. I can go through policies uh, during the Trump administration and I can argue the merits or, or lack thereof going, depending on what department we're talking about. 
Um, but the thing is, it's sushi and a whole pile of heaping shit and poison and cyanide. So that's not the part that I'm willing to to put up with. Now, when I say that, I'm not here to tell you that Joe Biden or people with D before the name are angels. That's not the case. But I do think that people um, they have people on both sides of the aisle, independents. There are people who are in leadership positions, elected offices that still have a sense of right and wrong. And even though they have to compromise with people who disagree with them on a lot of things, and sometimes to be fair, compromise their own integrity, like what you're saying about like going to $10,000 plate dinners. Um, I do think there's still, I still hold out hope. Maybe I'm just looking through rose colored glasses that some, some folks who like Adam Kinzinger, Adam Kinzinger, if you talk to him, yeah, he was a Republican that served in Congress for the, a decade plus. That that dude has integrity. He had to, or Denver Riggleman was only there, I forget it was two or four years, but Denver Riggleman, he'll, he'll be the first one to tell you, I hated myself for doing this, you know, and I forget the, um, the story he told, but uh, just, you know, supporting a bill that he didn't really believe in because, you know, uh, the, the guy who was running his campaign said he had to. But a guy like that, he was like, I'm never going to do that again. You know, and then as a Republican, he ended up um, uh, helping to a, a, ma a gay married couple get married so he conducted the wedding for them, um, even as a Republican. And then he got voted out of office because he stood on principle. Same thing with Kinzinger. He stood on principle. Next thing you know, they redistrict him out of. But I do think that there are people that are principled. Um, they have to make all kinds of compromises. I don't know how they do it, especially in today's climate. But um, yeah, so the, the short answer to your question is, were there pieces of legislation that I was rooting for? Uh, sure. Um, but I'm not going to eat the, even the best sushi in the world if it's in a pile of shit and cyanide. <laughs> is that a fair way to put it? Yeah. Um, but then, okay, so here's the follow-up question to that is, um, what is, so then by your analogy, um, would you eat a piece of shit if it was on a golden, you know, $10,000 uh, ornate plate with uh, with uh, mother of pearl inlays in, in it? You understand? So like, what if the, the policy sucks, but it comes in, in a nice package? You know, right, or right. like, um, uh, for example, during the Obama administration, um, they basically ruined the country of Libya. Like Libya mm. was was a country that, by all by all accounts, was for the most part at peace and um, law abiding for the most part. Um, they actually, Gaddafi had. Uh, we had negotiated for Gaddafi to give up his nuclear weapons, and he did. Yeah. He, he actually agreed with that, gave up his weapons, and then we bombed the crap out of him and um, basically opened up Libya to become a chaotic slave market. Yeah. And that so was at the behest of, of um, well, I mean, Obama was president, but Hillary was secretary of state. And so... <clears throat> You know, there's a crappy piece of legislation by a person that people claim is a hero or two of them that they claim are heroes. Right. So, yeah. So I'm never going to die on a particular uh, individual politician's hill. 
I'm not going to die on that hill. The hill that I'm willing, I don't know if I'm going to willing to die on it, but the hill that I'm willing to fight on is the, the hill of process. So what I objected to early on in um, Obama's first term was that we were coming out of 2008. We were coming out of financial collapse, the Great Recession, as I called it, right? And the impression that I got with Pelosi took uh, the first time that she was speaker in 06. So it was Pelosi. Uh, Obama had both houses of Congress. Instead of saying, here are things that the country needs and um, we can work together to address these needs. Um, the impression that I got was Pelosi and, and Obama had a bug up their ass and they're like, now we can do, now we can really give it to them, you know? And they they went immediately and, and spent capital, political capital on what they wanted to do, not what needed to be done, but what they wanted to do. Now, there's plenty of uh, ink that was spilled and conversations that have been had, you know, books have been written about Obamacare that's not what I'm making a judgment on, the policy itself. What I'm saying, again, is it's not the policy hill that I'm going to die on. It's the process hill. So if there's, I believe that if you have the right process, if you have the right, if you have the right order of priorities and get good people in a room together, like the immigration bill is a great example. Um, Lankford, is that is the senator from Oklahoma? Um, he he produced a really, really conservative piece of legislation that was a lot more, it, it was it was closing the border is basically what it was. It was the most conservative piece of immigration legislation that was presented in, in basically forever. Um, but the House didn't want to take it up. The House didn't, the, the, the Republican-led House didn't want to take it up because they're more committed to having the issue than solving the problem, you know? Mm. So Lankford was held out to dry. Why? Because he had the temerity to have like a Democrat in the room trying to hammer out, not even a Democrat, Kirsten Simmons is uh, an independent now. She's a declared independent. But he had the temerity to, to not have an extreme right wing Republicans only in the room with him hammering out the legislation. I was a fan of the process. It was Lankford, a, a, as conservative as they come, if you look at his voting record, um, leading the writing of the, the immigration uh, bill coming out of the Senate and cinema, who's not even a Democrat anymore. She's a centrist. She's an independent centrist. Um, mm -hmm. So that's that. That's how I would answer that. It's not a piece of legislation. It's or excuse me. It's not a piece of legislation or even a, um, you know, uh, Obama or any particular leader. It's the process that I want to see. I want to see a better, maybe not collaborative, but at least a, a process that allows for the possibility of compromise. So Listen, if, if Republicans have a 30-seat uh, majority, great. Then it should be an 80% conservative-leaning bill, you know? But 80% doesn't mean it's 100% bad because you didn't get everything you wanted, which is a position that, you know, Mike Johnson, who has a two-seat majority right now, is, is taking. So mm -hmm. I'm committed to the process and the possibility of compromise, uh, even if it's not 100% of what I want. So that's mm -hmm. how I feel about it. Well, the last thing I'll say about that is that I think that the the structure of the political system um it's it's sort of rigged to not create collaboration anymore. Yeah. Like yeah. why are there only two parties? 
Really? Oh man, I was just in this conversation a few minutes before we hopped on. I, I am definitely a fan of experimenting on a state by state basis with ranked choice voting primaries, um, open prime, excuse me, ranked choice voting in the in the uh, primaries, um, open primaries. Let's see how it works, man, so that we get some uh, open the possibility for whether they're moderates or at the very like, just give me the possibility that more true independents can get in there, you know? Yeah. So yeah, that, that's the biggest problem I see is that, you know, it's come down to this or that only. Right. And, you know, I don't know how we get out of that because that, you know, I, I mean, it's like, because if they're both corrupt, then, then what do you do? You're screwed. We're all yeah. screwed because if they're both taking money from the same, they're both taking money from Raytheon, then how do we get a bill that supports peace? If they're both taking money from Pfizer, yeah. Yeah. How do we not get the state that those crazy COVID lockdowns? You know what I mean? Like, yeah, it's everything's going to be driven by self-interest. You know, so, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, I didn't think we'd be talking this long. I thought this would be like 30, 35 minutes. But here we are. Like, it's almost an hour and a half later. Um, <laughs> I do have to wrap it up because I, I, I don't want folks tuning out, you know. Um, yeah, yeah. So a couple quick questions and then and then we'll call it a day. Uh, this is called the TPNR question. Uh, talk politics and religion without killing each other. What do you think each of us can do to be able to share space with, have better conversations with, perhaps even nurture relationships with people across our differences? So people who have different backgrounds and beliefs than we do, who get their news from different sources than we do. How can we do better at talking politics and religion without killing each other? Or is it even possible? Um, I do think it's possible. I think anything's possible. But I would say... The short answer is turn social media off. Mm. Um, I I actually, I have a Twitter account, but I, I basically took it off my phone. I don't yeah. go on anymore. Um, I don't, I try very, very hard not to uh, post on Facebook about anything political. Um, you know, I find it, it's hard though, because I get so... I get so worked up about things like the thing that that I saw that you posted. I'm like, ah, how do I not say something about this? <laughs> but, um, <clears throat> but I try really hard not to uh, not to get political on social media. I think that's one way. The other way is just to practice listening. I mean, that's that's probably the easiest the easiest answer. I don't know that it's the easiest to do, but you know, people have to get better at listening and not talking. Yeah. No, that's a that's a good point. It's something I'm not great at, but one of the reasons I'm doing this program is so that I can get better at it. So that I can kind of like a couple times uh, just in this conversation where you leave room for the possibility that at some point I might say, "Huh, I didn't think of it that way." <laughs> you know? Yeah, exactly. Um, how can we follow you? Well, you're not on social, but I want people to know how to find like if they're in Jersey, how they can find guilty pleasures and anything else oh. you want us to know about. Hang on a second. I, I, that I'll post in the chat too. Um, All right. Yeah. So on Instagram or Facebook, it's just uh, Guilty Pleasures Music. It's all one word, Guilty Pleasures Music. What's the preferred platform? Is it a website or this, the Facebook page? Or I think, I think I'm think i leaning towards Instagram. I think Facebook's going to die at some point in the next couple of years. Okay. So I'll post a link to that in the show notes. Because uh, it really is great fun, and and you you do really well. Uh, the times that I've seen you, you, you incorporated other guest musicians in, like Mark Basis uh, sat in yeah. on drums with you. So much fun, man! It's just a good good vibe, good 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 fun. 
Um, and you're fucking good, man. Like, I'm not saying that just because it's you, but like, you've clearly worked on your craft. Um, and uh, I, I, I really admire, you know, how good, how just virtuous you are at your, you know, as a musician. Um, but also you're, you're good enough to where it's like, you, you're just able to have fun with it. And everybody, you, you include everybody in the party. So it's, um, if you're in Central Jersey, I'll, I'll, I'll put this in the show notes, look them up, have a party with them. Uh, I'm going to be there, hope, totally expect you to like point us in the right direction the night before the reunion coming up here in June. So, oh, well, yeah. When is that? It's at the very end of June. I think it's like June 29th or 30th or something like that. All right. I better put that on my calendar. I don't absolutely think get, get a gig in uh, in freehold or something or wherever it is that we're, we're meeting up. So, okay. All right, man. Hey, this was, uh, I'm so glad that we did this, Rich. I, I, um, you know, I wasn't sure how it was going to go, but I know that I respect you and, and have always liked you. And, you know, regardless of whether we were going to get heated or not, I figured we'd figure out how, how to navigate through a good conversation. So, and we did, we did more than that. So I, I really appreciate your time and uh, being willing to do this with me. Yeah. Thanks for having me on Cor. It was a good time. Absolutely. And as always, if you dig what we're doing here, remember to follow rate and review, write that review and tell a friend about talk of politics and religion without killing each other. We are pretty easy to recommend. It's politicsandreligion.us. It's www.politicsandreligion.us. You can find me online. I still am on social at Corey S. Nathan, C-O-R-E-Y-S as in Sam, N-A-T-H-A-N, at Corey S. Nathan. Now go talk some politics and religion with gentleness and respect and have a great week.